It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 353 for July 28th, 2013. This week, anybody who needs to create occasional small published documents should take a look at Czar Page and Layout Designer. A small company in Poland specializes in fixing Microsoft Outlook blunders. We'll take a look at one of their applications. In short circuits, I found something that'll be popular with a lot of tablet owners. Intel is working on new CPUs that will power smaller, ultra-thin devices. Former Transportation Secretary Bray LaHood takes on distracted drivers. And Google aims at your TV set with Chromecast. Zara's familiar user interface is back, packaged this time to allow the application to serve as a publishing program, or perhaps more accurately, a page layout program. The name even makes that distinction. It's called Zara Page and Layout Designer. If you have a need to create advertising flyers and newsletters, this could be just what you're looking for. The distinction I make between publishing and page layout primarily deals with the length of the document. A page layout application is suitable for single-page documents, as well as relatively short multi-page documents such as newsletters. Magazines, newspapers, and books call for specialized programs that have been designed to deal with long documents. Zara Page and Layout Designer is ideal for short documents because it's quick, uncommonly flexible, and easy to learn particularly for anybody who's worked with other Zara applications. To test drive Page and Layout Designer, I decided to create a single-sheet, two-page newsletter. I started with one of Zara's built-in templates. The template gave me a space for the newsletter name, a logo, the date, several images, and a single column of text on the front page. On the back page, I found a single column of text that stretches all the way across the page. That's too long for easy reading, as far as I'm concerned, and even the narrower single column on the front page is too wide by my standards. Either the text needs to be larger, or the line spacing needs to be increased, or both, or the text needs to be broken into two columns. I try to use programs the way that a lot of people use them, and that means not reading the instructions. So, how might I convert a one-column text box to a two-column text box? My first inclination usually is to right-click what I want to change, and I was immediately shown a drop-down list that included columns. That's what I clicked. That allowed me to select the number of columns, and the display showed the column gap would be 0.66 centimeters. Oh boy. Except for Uganda and the United States, most of the rest of the world uses metric measurements. You can change the program's default to inches if you wish, or leave it alone and just type dot two five inches if you want a quarter inch gap. You'll see a screenshot of all that on the TechBiter Worldwide website and note that there is a small mark at the bottom of the left column and a line extends from there with an arrow pointing to the top of the right column. That means the text will flow from one column to another. On the back page I changed the number of columns from one to three. Having recently visited the wilds I decided to use some of the images from that trip for this newsletter. I changed the banner that said Newsletter to The Wilds, and then I selected a typeface that Page and Layout Designer told me it would install. 
Unfortunately, that caused the application to crash. Auto backup saved the day, so I tried a typeface that didn't have to be installed. That worked. After dragging in a photo of a group of white rhinoceroses, I decided I wanted the background of the banner to pick up the color of the grass that the rhinoceroses were standing on, and the title text to pick up the color of the rhinoceroses. Accomplishing this was as easy as selecting the background and dragging the color picker over the grass until I found the shade I wanted, and repeating that process with the text and the rhinoceroses. So that the image would fit without cropping into a rhinoceros, I needed to make it a bit taller than what the original image was. That change left too little space for the photo caption underneath, so I decided to move the caption into the lower right area of the image. I dragged two more images onto the document to replace other images on the front page, then repeated the process on the back page. Making great progress here. The next steps would involve importing text for the article and placing a logo on both pages. And because this is an imaginary newsletter, I didn't do either one of those. But I can tell you this, working with Zara Page and Layout Designer is a delight. When something seems like it should just work in a particular way, it usually does. The most significant bit of confusion I encountered was with that color picker. But it made sense once I understood it. You select the object that you want to modify, and it's not limited to text or geometric shapes. You can also tone photographic images this way. And once you've done that, you click and hold the color picker. That was the step I missed. Then you hover the color picker over the various colors shown at the bottom of the page, or anything on the page, including a photograph, until you find the color you're looking for. When you find the right color, just release the color picker, and the selected object will be recolored. Easy. After entering text, page and layout designer users may rotate the text to any angle, and it remains editable. Text may also be placed on a curved path. The program does offer paragraph styles, but no character styles. And there are three text modes, single line, text area, and columnar. The latter two modes are really pretty similar. Images may be set to repel text, so the text will reflow around the image wherever you move it. And images can be anchored to the text so that they'll stay in the same position relative to the anchor point if text is added or deleted. In other words, there are some pretty high-end features here. Zara's 3D capabilities are really second to none. Corel applications do a really good job with extrusion effects, but Adobe lags in this area. Page and Layout Designer allows the user to rotate and extrude text, shapes, graphics, and photos. Page and Layout Designer takes advantage of Google Fonts, which offer a large collection of typefaces, for free. Zara includes the collection in Page and Layout Designer, but as you've already seen, sometimes it might cause the application to crash. Although substantially different from other applications, Zara's interface becomes increasingly intuitive as you work with it. Page and Layout Designer works best with single-page designs, but it can handle somewhat larger documents too, although I would be cautious about using this application for book-length projects. Page and Layout Designer automatically does flow text onto new pages as they're needed. Surprisingly, when you create a multi-column layout from a single text block, you have control over the length of each individual column. This is not a feature I would expect in an application such as this. Page and Layout Designer differs from competing products because the user does just about everything inside a single application. 
Instead of using a photo manipulation program, a graphics application, and a publishing program, Page and Layout Designer provides for all those needs. An integrated photo tool lets you crop photos, adjust brightness, contrast, color temperature, saturation, and sharpness. Included drawing tools from Zara's illustration products provide the ability to add bevels, shadows, transparency, 3D effects, and color fills. And when the document's complete, you have various output options. PDF and PDFX are the industry standard for transferring documents, and Page and Layout Designer allows you to export in those formats. Additionally, you have access to CMYK, HSV, and Pantone colors, in addition to RGB, which is used throughout most of the Microsoft Office applications. So the bottom line for Page and Layout Designer, for many office workers, this publisher is the one to beat. Zara Page and Layout Designer isn't going to replace Adobe InDesign in high-end publishing situations, but it could be exactly what individual business users need. It's easy to use and surprisingly powerful. Surprisingly powerful is a term that I seem to use frequently with Zara applications, and it's deserved. If you create flyers, brochures, or business cards, and you're currently trying to perform those tasks with Microsoft Word or Microsoft Publisher, you owe it to yourself to take a look at Zara Page and Layout Designer. You'll find more information on the Zara website, and you'll, of course, find a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. this year, I grudgingly changed my email program to Microsoft Outlook and reminded myself that they don't call it Lookout without a good reason. That's not a new thought. I was reminded of its accuracy when I selected several messages in a folder, pressed delete, and responded to the, are you sure you want to permanently delete the selected items by clicking yes? Well, the folder disappeared. Here's why that happens. Outlook does not prompt for confirmation when the user deletes messages from regular folders, but it does prompt for confirmation when the messages being deleted are in the deleted items folder. The logic of that escapes me. If it's in the deleted items folder, I've already deleted it, and I'm just asking Outlook to expunge it from the computer. And I empty the deleted items folder frequently. So my standard reaction to that prompt is to click yes. Now that's fine most of the time, but Outlook makes it all too easy to select both a message in a standard folder and the folder itself. When Outlook asks about deleting the folder, muscle memory kicks in. This is bad design. It's also entirely too easy to grab a folder when you think you're grabbing the scroll bar in Outlook and accidentally move the folder. This is true in Windows Explorer, too, so it plagues any user who ever uses a file and folder dialog. Although I would prefer not to use Outlook, it's required at the office, and Outlook's calendar, contacts, and task management components are really pretty good. So a few months ago, I switched from the BAT to Outlook, and I found ways to replicate most of the BAT's advanced features, but only by relying on third-party applications and extensions. The BAT a product of a tiny development company in Moldova, makes it impossible to move or delete a folder by accident. But to avoid accidental folder relocations or deletions in Outlook, you need to install an application from Code2 in Poland. 
You know, I suppose this might raise a question about why companies in Central and Eastern Europe can figure out something that has eluded Microsoft's developers for so many years. But, of course, I'm too polite to raise that question. The problem is particularly annoying when the folder that's accidentally deleted is referenced by an Outlook rule, because deleting the folder breaks the rule, even if the folder is immediately recreated before the rule runs. So, the repair involves more than just recreating the directory or moving it back out of the deleted items folder. The unfortunate user must also edit the rule to re-establish the link. Code2's Move and Delete Watchdog is one of the company's many products that attempt to mitigate Outlook's many shortcomings. Although not all of Code2's applications are free, this one is. So I downloaded Move and Delete Watchdog, installed it, and found that any attempt to delete a folder was met not only with Outlook's warning that's easy to ignore, but also with a much stronger warning that requires an explicit yes or no response, not just a key press. Unfortunately, I also found that an important shared calendar was inaccessible when Move and Delete Watchdog was running. I reported that problem to Code 2, and even though this is one of their free applications, the support department responded promptly. I had also attempted to install Move and Delete Watchdog at home, where I have Outlook 2013. I found that it could not be installed. Code 2's support department reported that a new version would support Outlook 2013 and suggested several workarounds to fix the calendar problems at the office. None of those workarounds succeeded, though. And then, in late July, Code 2 released a new version of Move and Delete Watchdog that solved both problems. It installs when Outlook 2013 is present, and it doesn't interfere with my shared calendar under Outlook 2010. Code 2 has lots more fixes and enhancements. You can check them out at the Code 2 website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Note, though, when you look at the Code 2 website, you'll find that some of the applications marked free are really only free for a 30-day evaluation period. After that, you have to pay for them, but in most cases, the prices are very reasonable. short circuits, tablet computers that run full versions of Windows on standard Intel processors are powerful, but the connections are limited. Undoubtedly, this is by design, because every installed connection takes space inside the case. I've been using my Acer Iconia tablet at the office more recently, and I found that I needed something that isn't included. There is just one USB connector on the case. Now, that's okay because the keyboard is a Bluetooth device and I can use the single USB connector for a mouse. But it's not okay because I'm prohibited from connecting a personal computer to the corporate network. So moving files from a desktop system to the tablet requires a thumb drive. And that means I have to disconnect the mouse and use the touch screen to select and move files. As much as I like the touchscreen for a lot of things, it's really not the best option when it comes to moving a file. What I really wanted was another USB port. And I was picky. I didn't want a 15-port hub that would be half the size of the tablet computer, or even a 4-port hub. Those are fairly big, too. What I hoped to find was a 2-port hub, just enough for a mouse and one other device, and I hoped the hub would have a cord that was longer than the stub some devices come with, but not so long that it would get in the way. A Google search suggested the pluggable two-port hub, and I found that Amazon sold it. I ordered one. 
Unfortunately, United Parcel Service couldn't find the two-story block-long building that they've been delivering to nearly every day for the past five years, and so I had to place a second order. Amazon arranged to have the replacement shipped overnight, so it was only one day late. Thanks, Amazon. The cord on the two-port pluggable USB hub is about a foot long and perfect for my needs. I plugged it in, plugged the mouse in, plugged a thumb drive in, and everything just worked. Now, sometimes this surprises me with USB devices, but that's because I'm old enough to remember the first iterations of these devices when plug-and-play was often rendered as plug-and-pray. USB is a stable technology, and it has been for a long time. The product is manufactured in China, and that's probably true of most of the company's products. I suspect, though, that the design and packaging are from the U.S. That's because the information and specifications on the package clearly have been written by a native speaker of English. What's surprising is the amount of information that is provided. Most people know that a USB connection provides power to the attached devices, but Pluggable is very careful to explain This bus-powered hub shares the available power, 500 milliamps, from a single upstream port to each of the two downstream ports. Because the power is shared, devices connected via the hub should be low-powered, keyboards, mice, etc., or self-powered, printers, powered hubs, powered external hard drives. I like that kind of information. This isn't a sufficiently large, expensive, or complicated piece of hardware to warrant a full review, but it's really nice to find something that matches my needs exactly, does just what it's supposed to do, and costs less than 10 bucks. Now I keep looking at that USB 3 port on the tablet and thinking that the tablet might be even more useful if I could connect a larger monitor, an external hard drive, and maybe a wired network connection. And it seems that Pluggable has the equivalent of a USB docking station that can do exactly that. In other words, if the only thing that's keeping you from using a USB device with your computer is the lack of a connection, you might want to take a look at what Pluggable has to offer. Intel has typically built the engines that power computers that might be compared to muscle cars of the past. These CPUs are relatively large, they run hot, they require fans. As buyers increasingly move toward smaller portable devices, Intel faced an uncertain future. Haswell is expected to fix that. Haswell is the name of a set of new chips that are much thinner so that they'll fit into ultra-thin devices and cool enough when running that they don't need fans. Intel had shown a fanless computer earlier this year which hinted at the new development. Now they're releasing a bit more information about the extra-thin version of the Haswell chip. The super-thin variants of the Haswell chip are designed to consume 4.5 watts. That means they'll have limited computing power, but the chips can tolerate higher speeds for short periods. This compares, by the way, to the Ivy Bridge processors that run at 10 watts, more than double. Haswell chips already provide much longer battery life, and a limited run of the thinner chips would be attractive to companies that are building the smaller, thinner devices. That could mean that thicker tablets that run Windows 8 and have fans inside the case will become smaller and thinner, because the fan will no longer be needed.
Former Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood says he'd like to see automotive and high-tech industries disable the functions of electronic devices that aren't directly related to driving when a vehicle is in motion. In an interview with Matt Rectel of the New York Times, LaHood said that even dialing a number on a voice-activated phone is a distraction from driving. Scientific testing has clearly shown that motorists do react far more slowly to emergency situations when they're using electronic devices while driving, even if those devices are not handheld, and even if they are voice-activated. During the interview, LaHood said that voice recognition systems do not meet his criteria for being considered safe, even though auto manufacturers claim they are safer than using handheld devices. Companies that sell alcoholic beverages have, after being pressured by the government, started to run advertisements about the dangers of drunk driving. LaHood says he'd like to see automotive and high-tech industries take the same approach with distracted driving. The problem in America, LaHood says, is our cell phones are, in a sense, like alcohol. We're hooked on them, and we can't put them down when we're behind the wheel of a car when we're driving. We're hooked on these devices, and we can't put them down anytime, any place, anywhere. Years ago, distracted driving wasn't in anybody's lexicon, LaHood said. We've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. Check out the full article by Matt Rictel on the New York Times website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. like Google wants a piece of your television. For 35 bucks, you can purchase Google Chromecast and control your television. Maybe. Nearly any web video or audio will play on your TV if it plays in your Chrome desktop browser. The exceptions are Silverlight and QuickTime videos. In other words, you can play sources such as Netflix, Pandora, HBO Go, Hulu, and radio on your TV. Chromecast is a little stick device. It can be plugged into your TV's HDMI port so you can toss content to it via Wi-Fi. If your TV doesn't have an HDMI port, well, you're just going to have to get with the program and buy one that does. But for just $35, this is a solution that will allow those of us who don't have smart TVs to play internet video on TV screens. If you buy the device now, you get three months of Netflix for free. If you're an existing Netflix streaming subscriber, you'll still get three months for free. So the price of Chromecast effectively drops to zero. If you have an Android or Apple phone or tablet, you can toss content to your TV from them. The device also turns your smartphone or tablet into a great big remote control that allows you to control your TV. It would seem that this device might make a number of other companies nervous. Very, very nervous. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.